the purpose of meditation is calm and insight. <coughs> and insight does not mean what you just said, namely that we have to have a self without a support system. We can't have a self without a support system. It's not possible. The purpose of, of meditation is to gain the insight into the true reality which shows us to be phenomena. But that is a bit ahead and um, needs a, a fair bit of understanding first, information, and then the knowledge, and then the practice, and then the wisdom, and that's insight. So it's um, in order to get the mind capable of even seeing anything beyond its nose, past all the sense contacts, past all the information that we've stored, past all that, it's got to become calm first. Otherwise, it can't do it. It's chock-a-block with stuff. There's no space left. It hasn't got any empty spaces where anything new can go in. So it's... um because of the fact that the Buddha's teaching is not concerned with this relative reality in which we live, only in order to use it as a springboard. In the beginning, without knowing the Buddha's teaching, that part of it is difficult to understand. So, do you want to question it further? Well, no, I think I should study both. Uh, I think probably I was looking at techniques and mechanisms rather than the... Mm. Well, there are techniques. Yeah. There are techniques. But um, the techniques are always um, either for karma or for insight. Mm. And what insight really means is a gradual process, just as calm is a gradual process, but everybody can fairly well understand what it means to become calm. I mean, although we don't know what it means to become really calm, we have an idea. But what real insight means, that's a little difficult to understand without having some prior information. Well, calm must come from the, our own feeling of not being threatened, anyway. Uh, you couldn't be calm if you felt threatened, so we must... Mm, but that's only a um, um, relative calm. That's not complete calm. Calm is not the absence of fear. It, it needs that as a support, naturally. When there's fear, there can't be any. That's quite true. But when there's real calm and insight, fear is no longer available. So the absence of fear is, an, is a, um, uh, one of the um, ingredients but not quite enough. Not, not, um, at least not this uh, level of absence of fear. When there's total insight, of course, there's absence of fear, then there can be total calm. These are the difficulty of understanding the absolute reality from a relative standpoint lies in the fact that absolute reality is, is on one track and relative reality is on another track and they never intersect. 
we're either going on this track or we're on that track. And what the Buddha taught is that we're using this one, the relative one, which we all know, in which we all find ourselves, as our um, basis for practice. We have to, in order to eventually be able to lift ourselves to the absolute reality, the other track. But they never intersect. So it's often um, felt as if there were paradoxes or things like that. Is the transition from one track to the other, is it instantaneous eventually, no. or is it... Gradual. Gradual. Yes. Very gradual. So, but maybe I'm playing with words, but would that imply that at some stage you're really not, you're not attached to either track. You're, you're, you've left your relative track, you haven't reached the absolute track. Is that... No. As long as you, as long as you have an eye of um, understanding of the relativity, you can't live in the absolute. But the change in the relativity becomes more, is gradual so that eventually, um, well, these are similes which just go this far and no further. You can't take them to the end because they won't apply. Uh, as you change your understanding of relativity, you get nearer and nearer to the absolute. Um, not just the understanding. The understanding is fairly simple. I'll explain it in a moment. It's very simple the understanding. It's the actual feeling of it. And then as you do that through practice, you come nearer and nearer. You can leave that understanding behind, which is called in Buddhist terminology wrong view, and you get right view. But it is a gradual, gradual development. The Buddha compared it to an ocean where you go in first with your feet and get your feet wet, and as you gradually go further and deeper into the ocean, get wet to your knees and up to your hips and up to your shoulders, and eventually you're completely covered with the ocean and the water. It's a gradual teaching. It's not like all of a sudden this mantle of insight and de descends on you. In fact, it's probably... There are moments when you realize that there has been a new understanding, but how this changes your person a personal view, it's impossible to say because it is so gradual. Okay, any other questions? Why does it mean then that ego doesn't exist in reality? Evil, yes, unwholesomeness exists, of course. Well, the word evil is not ego, so... Ego. Oh, ego, sorry, I thought you said evil. <laughs> ego. Uh, well, when we use the word ego as a substitute for the word self, uh, it doesn't exist, no. It's a, it's a delusion, it's an illusory standpoint, which we have um, created for ourselves um, out of this wish for survival, which also is an impossibility. We can't survive. So we have made up all sorts of ideas in order to be solid, safe, secure, and important. Then self has no connotation other than that it's an individual. What is individual? Self. Self. You mean the meaning of it? Yes. Yes, the meaning means I'm me. I'm me, this is mine, or my. That's the connotation of self. Self is the connotation 
that everybody feels there's either a little lady or a little gentleman sitting inside of oneself, peering out through the ears, looking out through the eyes, tasting through the mouth, smelling through the nose, thinking through the mind, and that this little person that's sitting in there and is doing all that has to be well protected, has to be safe and secure, shouldn't have any unpleasantness arising to that little person, and uh, should be loved and appreciated. So we develop ego Ah, then you're using the word ego as yes. a different thing, as egocentricity. Egocentricity goes along with this kind of viewpoint as a natural uh, companion. It's natural. The egocentricity is, is natural for any viewpoint of such as that. And everybody feels like that, and that because everybody feels like that, they expect this to be the truth. That it doesn't work for our benefit, people are very un incapable, actually, of realizing because this little person that's supposedly sitting inside there and doing all these things is not constantly protected, safe and secure, and doesn't get loved and appreciated and has never, never has any unpleasant feelings. It just doesn't work that way. But we don't quite know why. A bit of a, in, a, in a quandary. Very often, in, before we start any practice, any pra uh, you know spiritual practice, we think that we just haven't quite done it quite right. If we had answered differently, or if we had uh, uh, acted differently, or if we'd gone somewhere else, it would have been better. It wouldn't have happened like that. But then we try the new way, and it doesn't work either. So we just eventually maybe sort of turn off of that search how to make it all right when ego is is the egocentricity uh, is not exactly the way i use the word ego i use the word ego in um, just as a substitute for the word self but when we use it as uh, being selfish that goes along with this viewpoint which can't be helped that's the way it is and we have to eventually see our way clear to do something about it. Any any other questions? Yes. I've got another question about the eyes. About the? <laughs> eyes. Eyes, yes, yes. Um, during the day, I find I want to stare out the window quite a lot, or keep my eyes wide open and stare at things. And um, I think this is making me a bit too sort of daydreamy. Well, have you ever watched your mind what it's doing? Have you ever watched your mind what it's what kind of stories it tells you? No, no, I don't mean when you're staring at something. The most prominent thing that your mind is telling you constantly. The most prominent thing. I presume fairy tales. I presume that the most prominent thing in the mind are fairy tales. We ever notice that? No? Have you ever noticed that you're not with it when things are happening, but that you are talking to yourself? That's, that's no, I seem to be able to draw the attention very quickly to whatever might need to be done. And you don't, when you don't have to do something, you don't tell yourself fairy tales? No, I don't. 
Maybe you don't know they're fairy tales. Maybe you think they're real. <laughs> It feels more like blank, like being blank. Hmm, well, there's nothing wrong with being blank if you, if you can at the same time have a feeling of a good feeling about yourself. Do you have a good mm. feeling about yourself? Mm. No, no. Mm. Well, there's nothing wrong with not thinking. Nothing at all. If you don't tell fairy tales, it's all right. Mm. And, uh, but apparently it's, it's, it's uh, it's bothering you. I think I'm just a bit full of daydreaming. Well, that's fairy tales. In company, you know, I just made a bit of fairy rather than, you know, I prefer to just look out the window than talk to you instead of anyone. You prefer to look out the window rather than talk to people? <coughs> well, I do too. There's <laughs> 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 nothing wrong with that. Unless it's absolutely essential to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's bothering your eyes, is it, or not? No. It's not? No. I can't see anything wrong with it. If you can snap back yes. to what you have to do. If you can snap back when you... I mean, everybody has duties and responsibilities. Yes. And if you can snap back to them and pay full attention. Yes. And then... Um, and when your mind doesn't have uh, fairy tales to tell, but actually doesn't think, and you have a good feeling about yourself at that time. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. It just isn't popular, that's all, but it isn't, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and if it doesn't bother your eyes, and if it doesn't bother your, your feeling about yourself, it's okay. That's fine. So if, if, it's, if it's a quietness in the mind, that's fine. You should be very easy, should be very easy for you to learn to meditate. Have you been able to meditate well while you've been coming here? Yes. Mm. You be able to concentrate well, and, and um, were you aware of the uh, talks I gave on the um, absorptions? Were you there when I gave them, or not? Not the absorptions. No. no. And. No, the day before, the day before and the evening, yes, would have been on the Sunday, wouldn't it, yes, uh -huh. yes, yes, that was part of it, yes, so uh, have you had any of those experiences, you should be able to meditate quite easily if you don't think so much during the day, oh, well. yes, I find I can get to calm quite easily, Yes, but have you had pleasant feelings arise when you sit there calmly? Oh, yes, I get warm and tingling. And right, well, there you are. See, um, uh, because you're not overworking your mind during the day, you can sit down and meditate. See, this is the answer. For most people, impossible. Mm. They're thinking all the time. So, uh, and have you been able to feel a, um, become aware of a feeling of happiness when you were sitting there with that tingly feeling? Yes. Okay. Well, the next, were you able to let go of the tingly feeling and just pay attention to the happiness? Not 
Okay, well, that's your next step. Well, that's your next step. You let go of the tingly feeling, get to the happiness, stay with the happiness. If you've stayed along, long enough with the happiness, the next feeling that arises is one of utter contentment, wishlessness, no wishes. Because if one's happy, one hasn't got wishes. You see? So then your next, after the happiness, comes contentment. The one thing that you have to always do is wherever you finish, whether you finish with a tingly feeling, happiness, contentment, you look at the impermanence of even the nicest feeling. Because someone like yourself who can easily get to calm needs to have, um, pay great attention to gain insight. So the insight comes from the fact that this is also, I mean, one of the insights, comes from the fact that even this very pleasant feeling that has arisen is also impermanent and it also subsides. We can't hang on to anything. And from that understanding which you are experiencing, which is an experience because it's subsiding, you can then refer to everything else that belongs to you like your body and your mind, which we think belongs to us, and see whether you find anything permanent in there. So at the end of the meditation, look at the impermanence, then make a recapitulation. How did I get there? What exactly did I do? So that you can always do it. So the first three steps are that pleasant feeling, the, ha the second one is the happiness, third one is contentment. There are many more steps, but do those three first. Okay? Mm. And, and don't worry about not wanting to talk to people or thinking on all that. Mm -hmm. It's, um, no, don't, don't think about it. It's fine. It's, it's, it's quite all right. Uh, you know, some people, they substitute that with uh, what I call fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And that's no good because that's trying to cop out of reality. But if that's not what's happening, that's fine. Absolutely all right. Very fortunate, actually, I should say. <clears throat> Anything else? Yes. This meditation insight brings quite dramatic changes to um, a view of life. Yes. There's a lot of pain in facing up to even the people that have been coming to your home. Suddenly see them in a very different light and you want to say, please don't come anymore. I mean, there's, there's a lot of pain in, mm. in facing all this. In facing the inside of a different reality. Mm. And, and discarding. Mostly people. Um, discarding things doesn't matter. No. Discarding people. And it's yeah. harsh words. But yes, I know what you mean. Um, I, I know you, you don't mean to, you know, to be nasty or anything. <laughs> um, well, you see, the counteraction for that is loving kindness and compassion. So if you, if people come, who are disturbing to you, to your feeling of well-being. And uh, it is because of our own reaction to them, uh, unless they start smashing the furniture or something like that, which is a bit much, but most people don't do that. So we need to change our reactions through one, to one of loving kindness and compassion. Now, obviously, that's not always possible. There are some situations which we can't um, handle. There are some people we can't handle. Uh, most people have someone like that in their lives, uh, 
maybe in the past or maybe in the present. If that is so, then we have to admit that we are not capable in this particular instance to deal with that person rather than saying, oh, he's just awful or she's just awful. It's not them. It's our incapacity of being able to change our reaction to one of love and compassion. And at that time, it's quite all right to turn one's back on such a person because we first have to learn to handle that kind of thing. It's a situation which is still too heavy for us. So then, after we've learned it, we can come back and relate to that person again properly. But the whole thing with people, all right, they're, they're, they're not doing what we think they ought to be doing. I mean, very few people do what we think they ought to be doing. How about ourselves? Are we always doing what we think we ought to be doing? It doesn't work that way either. So there's the only way to relate to people in a manner, in a peaceful manner, is by learning this love and uh, unconditional love. <coughs> and when we learn that, then it is, well, it's their karma, isn't it, what they're doing? But it's our karma, how we relate to them. So that's very important to, to realize and uh, have a attention to that. <coughs> Does that answer your question? On other people? Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Yes, family in that. Well, children have responsibility. I mean, you can't turn away from your responsibility. There's no way. They've got to be brought up to the point where they stand on their own two feet. And when they do, well, then you can do what you like. So while once children are not grown up yet, one has to try to practice to the, in the best way one can, practice meaning, keep the meditation going, but children provide a perfect practice area of 
loving kindness and selflessness and um, care and concern which uh, one has to uh, provide so it's a very useful learning situation and if one has children obviously one needs that learning situation and then having having them one should use it for that fantastic teachers when they're tiny and very small they uh, when they scream you got to do something you know so and later on you, you know you've got to look after them in, in many ways so that's a very good learning situation and if one keeps the meditation going during that time and learns all the lessons without becoming impatient and um, or at least seeing the impatience and trying to remove it <laughs> yes <laughs> and uh, um, and without you know thinking uh, what a fool I've been to have all these children and now I've got to you know make all this money to feed them or but seeing it as exactly what it is namely the karmic resultant of the lesson that one needs and using it in that way and then having a naturally love for them and using that love to enlarge upon it and not just keep it within one's own family circle but go further with it use that understanding that feeling that we have for the one's own children that we can uh, then extend that to people just anyone as as uh, also as if they were our own children so we have a fantastic uh, learning procedure which lasts about uh, something like 18 years and which is very uh, useful and try and keep one's meditation going during that time and then after they're grown and have flown the nest and make one new uh, determination what now so even if uh, one's own children uh, my situation I've come into contact with some children over a couple of years and feeling that kind of responsibility because I had been around for that period of time. But um, came from a period of practicing away for quite a while and then feeling that same, same sort of desire to go off and practice my intention again. Are you talking about other people's yeah, children? Yeah, that, that I have you know, been like a father to. Oh, and then you want to go away. Well... Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't put my mind to a situation where you are like a father. I mean, if you're not the father, but if you're in a situation where you're supposed to be the father, maybe you're supposed to be the father. And if you're not, I don't know. I can't say. I have no idea. (laughs) I know what it means to be a father or mother. At least, you know, I can say something about that. But if you're not, I don't know. (laughs) It depends whether that is a situation where you are responsible. Or whether you feel responsible. And if you feel responsible, well, you've got to do something about your responsibilities, I suppose. And if not, if it's just a loose uh, uh, connection when you've done your duty, well, that's fine too. Somebody else, yes. Oh, yes. Um, in connection with all this, the way this lady was talking, just since I've been coming to your teaching, um, I've been feeling very much the same way um, but my son, from the morning he gets up to the time he goes to bed, is constantly asking why. What is his age? 
How old? How old is he? What is his age? Well, wait till he's five. It doesn't matter. <laughs> they always do that when they're four. And uh, I mean, it shows that he's got a you know an inquisitive mind and he's got an intelligent mind and um, sometimes you might be able to provide him with something to do that will keep him quiet for a while uh, not very long probably but um, you know these there are these books for small children where they can learn about things I don't know what they call them I think what was concerning me was that the way that I was feeling um, a lot of it was not I wasn't giving him the attention he needed and even though you know I'm feeling this way well, I mean, it's a, it is difficult to answer a child from morning to night. You must make some arrangement where you give him something to do which keeps him quiet for a little while, you know, and then find something else for him to do, something constructive. I mean, there are things that he can do in the garden, there are things that he can do with little books and things. It's not necessary to answer every why. It's totally unnecessary. I mean, there's, first of all, very often if you do, you'll see that he doesn't listen. He doesn't even listen to it. It's just a natural uh, uh, response, like when they're two, they say no. <laughs> they don't even know why they're saying no. They just say no. And when they're four, they say why. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. You feel, you feel what? You feel as if. Um, the, the way that I'm feeling now, I'm feeling very calm, mm. um, but I'm also very distracted from ordinary everyday activities. Um, and it just, when he starts saying why, uh, there's a lot of me that's going why anyway, and so mm. George is sort of piled on top. Yes, but you must realize that the why itself is a good thing, but. It is a good thing when you can do it contemplatively. When it's done by a small child, it's, um, it's a reaction to the fact that sometimes he found something very worthwhile as an answer. So once in a while he hears something which is really interesting to him, but about 75% of the time it's just a sort of a trial balloon. You know, am I going to get something now? Also, don't forget that children always try to uh, find out how far they can push their mothers. It's a very, very, um, it's a common um, thing. And so you you don't have to answer every one of those. And you'll find that he's forgetting the first one if he's already at the third one, if you haven't answered, you know. And uh, you're feeling, you're different feeling is, uh, is this your first time you're attending a meditation retreat? Yes, well, you see, it's all new. <laughs> and uh, it, um, it certainly has, uh, if you attend a, a real retreat, which means when it's a live-in retreat for 10 days, you know, such as I'm going to give it what Buddha Dhamma, you do come out feeling differently, but you also know why you're feeling differently. <laughs>
so it's a, this is like a beginning huh, of it. But don't worry, they all, they, and they all grow up in spite of us, you know. <laughs> okay, in the end. Anything else? I will tell you something about insight. And the insight methods which are available to us. Now, you know already that watching the breath and watching the movement of the feet, if you stay on this, it produces eventually calm. And I've already explained to you that there are then, without these methods, the eight steps of calm of which I have outlined the first one in detail and then mentioned the second and the third one just briefly, which it starts out with this pleasant feeling when the calm starts coming, the concentration. But the calm is the means and inside is the goal. And inside is the goal for the reason that it removes our delusions and illusions about ourselves and the world. It puts us right back to where reality is. Now, because of this reality, which is quite available to us to see in everyday activity, in all our personal um, contacts with ourselves and others, this reality shows us an, a, quite a different picture of the world. And this different picture then, when it becomes imbued within us and no longer is just um, knowledge but a feeling, changes, of course, our whole reaction to ourselves and everything that is in contact with us. Now, I've already mentioned to you that even just watching the breath, you can become aware of its impermanence, which means that the breath that goes out has to be a new one to come in, a new one to go out. If that isn't so, we'll be dead. Even after a very short time, we're already um, choking and struggling and then dying without this breath constantly changing. But because there is continuity, we find it very hard, because there's one breath after another, we find it very hard to become aware of the fact that it has to be a new one all the time. And the same goes for our bodies. There's continuity. It's been going on since the day we were born. And now we're here and look like this. But if you take a, let's say, out some old photo albums, which you or your parents might still have, of yourself from the age when you were born and small and grew up, and then 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and so forth. Now, if you take all these photos of yourself and then stand in front of the mirror with all these photos, which one are you? Supposedly, 
That's all you. Each one of them. Each one of these photos. Maybe starting from the birth photo, which looks quite funny sometimes, and then the one-year-old and the two-year-old and all the ones in between, the first day in school and all the rest of it. And then now, which one is it? Obviously, there isn't the slightest resemblance even. There's nothing to go by except that in your photo album. Your mother stuck it in there, and then later on you stuck them in yourself. That's the only reason why you know that this is supposed to be you. Now, if you had been taking a photo even more often than you might have, because most people don't have photos all the time, you could think that there might be 10,000 yous. So which one are you picking? Well, maybe you're going to pick the one that's in front of the mirror. And what about all the rest of them that look so different? Look entirely different. You could do it sometime and do like that. And see, now the question must arise. What happened? So obviously everybody knows what happened. You get born small, you grow up, and then you get older and you die. But all the time you're saying, this is me. Everybody goes around saying, this is me. No matter whether it's a small one, the medium-sized one, the, the younger one, the middle-aged one, the old one, it's always me. And obviously that small one that got born couldn't jump to a two-year-old um, physique and the two-year-old not to a 20-year-old uh, body. It had to go gradually. And this gradual change has to take place every single moment, doesn't it? We can't just stop and say, now, wait a minute, 39, that's it, no more. You can't do that, or 25, or whatever you prefer. It's quite impossible. It keeps going, a moment after moment after moment after moment. And what happens? Nobody pays any attention. I shouldn't say nobody, but hardly anybody. There are people who do pay attention to this, but most people don't. They don't want to know about it. Underneath is all we, don't, we do know. But so if we have a constant change every single moment and can see that quite clearly because we have photos, we don't have to imagine a thing. All we have to do is look at our, our photo albums. We could, from that already, see that the continuity of having that change happening all the time has covered over completely the impermanence, the change, which is the actuality. The continuity is our way of looking at things, but the actuality is this constant change which makes it impossible for anyone to real, really say, that's me. That one there, that's the best-looking one. That's me. Might be 30 years ago. <laughs> In my case, it surely is. But that was me. So what about this one here? Which one's that? So we need to look at it and that from the body standpoint. Now, most people identify with their bodies. They'll stand in front of the mirror and say, that's me. 
They get their photo taken and say, well, that's me. And because the change is imperceptible in each moment, meditation, when it becomes very concentrated, can bring about an, an actual experience of the constant movement that is actually happening in the body. And I'm not speaking about just the breath, which is also constantly moving. The blood, the heart, all these are constantly moving. No, actually each cell, the constantly moving cell. It is possible to become aware of that. It's a, it's a feeling of movement which arises. Now when that feeling of movement arises and we know a little bit about where this teaching can lead us, we can have an understanding of that experience that we are experiencing reality. It's got to be like that because how can it otherwise all of a sudden be 80 years old and die if it hadn't been moving all the time, if it had been stationary? There's got to be movement. And not only that, we know already from our um, scientists that they have found that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. There's nothing but energy particles that come together and fall apart. And that's us. Now these energy particles come together and fall apart so quickly that we think there is solidity. And this solidity overshadows our understanding that could otherwise have more it would be easier to understand that this is nothing but energy particles but it feels so solid so sol solidity overshadows our understanding that there's really nothing of substance here the substance which we are uh, used to is the substance which we can actually touch this feels substantial but in reality that's the earth element this feels just as substantial and so does this and this and this and this that's the earth element so again when we have um, more understanding of the teaching more concentration in meditation we can veer from the calm to insight by becoming aware for instance there are many many ways but for instance the four primary elements of which all matter consists and our body is matter and the one that we are very much aware of is the earth element which means solidity if we become aware of that within ourselves, very solid, sitting, the, uh, the buttocks on the seat, that's a very solid feeling. That's earth element. Now, immediately we can go from that to the actual thing we're sitting on. That feels that's just as solid. So we can, again, and we know what a tree feels like. Also solid. And if we can relate our solidity to the solidity of all that surrounds us particularly other people we will lose a bit little bit of our um, ego-based separation this ego-based separation is the um, a cause for 
dislike, uh, argumentation, anger, hate, um, alienation, and feeling threatened. So if we realize there's earth element in all that exists, it's impossible to be solid without it. We can, in a meditative procedure, see that clearly, that we are separating ourselves unnecessarily. The uh, second element, which we can be easily aware of, is called fire element. It's a temperature. Now, we can feel warm or cold quite easily, and if we're feeling comfortable, it's a warm feeling. And again, when we have this warm feeling for our, in our body, this concerns strictly the body, these four, then we can actually, we, if we like, we can put our hand on this and feel there's a temperature there. And uh, we know that there's a temperature if we touch whatever it is. If we touch this, there's temperature. If we touch this, it's temperature. So again, we can then already, uh, without touching our neighbors, we can already um, have that uh, understanding that temperature is also in, in everything that has matter to it. The earth itself has temperature. The other element which we can easily be aware of is the air or wind element, the breath, but also the wind in the body. But it also denotes movement. Air and wind is movement. So we have movement. We have movement in the body as the breath moves, as the blood moves, as um, the, uh, um, the winds that move, then we can sometimes feel even as if we are moving without moving. Movement which exists in all matter is the cause for its decay. Everything that we have falls apart eventually and has to be renewed. renewed. Even houses fall apart and they have to be constantly looked after and plaster put on and all the rest of it. And um, our clothing falls apart. Everything breaks up. Well, the movement that exists does that. It's not just old age. There's got to be something to that old age. Why is it falling apart? So that also we can feel in ourselves and relate to around ourselves. And the other one is water. Now, the water element has the binding quality. Water, of course, we know that we consist of something like 80% water or even more. And um, although we don't feel it, we feel so solid. But we have saliva we can feel. There's um, uh, the blood, the urine, the sweat, the uh, tears. But if we didn't have the water element to such a great extent, all our cells would be walking around separately. We would see reality a little more easily, but we'd look mighty funny. <laughs> and um, the binding element, you can see like this, if you have flour and you pour water into it, you get dough. It makes things stick together. So in a tree, you know, there's sap. In a, in a leaf, there is even um, uh, a watery element, but also it makes everything have its form. If we didn't have this, then we would see far more easily that all manifestation in the universe is nothing but matter.
it's all one manifestation. But because we have all these different forms that we look at, we think it's all particular and individual. And with that particular and individual, it gives us then pause for um, achievement and uh, wanting and uh, this idea of me that has to be uh, looked after in a certain way. But in meditation, becoming aware of these four elements is not very difficult if it's in oneself, and relating that to the world around is also not so difficult, which is a meditative, contemplative procedure which can be very useful. And within that, we get a better idea of the, uh, the fact that when we're saying this body is me, we're, we're talking about an illusion because the change which is constantly happening and the elements of which it consists have no individuality to them at all. Nothing at all. It just is phenomena. It's just the, the uh, elements, the uh, material elements coming together and it is the constant change which makes the body look different all the time. The, uh, when we come, when we have agreed with ourselves that we're not the body, then, of course, we must find something else that we are because it's not acceptable right away that we're nobody. Everybody wants to be somebody. So it's very ingrained in us and it's very difficult to get rid of. So we can accept the fact maybe we're not the body because after all we are intelligent enough to realize that this body doesn't have any other functions other than physical ones. So then of course we become the mind. We must be that. Mind, according to the Buddha's explanation, consists of four parts. Feeling, perception, mental formation and sense consciousness. And that's all there is to it. Now these are body and the four parts of mind are the five aggregates, the five aspects of ourselves. Now the investigation of body in the way I have outlined is um, helpful to show us that reality. Now we can investigate these other four parts of mind. And if we investigate, for instance, also in the meditation, our thinking procedure, the mental formations as a thinking, huh? and we can watch them arising and ceasing. They're coming and going. They're never staying. And we can't even remember them. We can't remember what we were thinking at 10 minutes past 8 this morning. We can't remember what we were thinking of at uh, 5 minutes to 10. We can't remember what we were thinking yesterday. We can't remember what we were thinking 20 years ago. And yet we identify with every thought that arises. And yet they're all gone. And we must have had, I'm um, impossible for me to say, but we must have had millions or billions of them since we started this life. So let's say we've had several billion, which I think is not enough. And with these several billions, we say, well, I am that. I am several billion thoughts. And 
naturally I'm the nasty ones and the nice ones because I would like to say that the nasty ones are not me, but we can't very well do that, although people try that. They say, they even use that sentence, well, that isn't me, or I wasn't myself this morning. (laughs) Well, who was I then? (laughs) So we've got billions and billions of thoughts, And all of them are me. It's not possible, is it? So I'm always the last one. And what about the other ones? Well, that's what I used to be. We don't let go that easily. But because they're so fast and so many, that when we meditate and we actually watch this arising and ceasing, we can come to an understanding that they are nothing but fleeting, phenomena which have actually arisen without our wanting them to arise because we would have much more preferred to be totally calm and peaceful and haven't got a thought in our heads but they did arise so we can see that and we can see that whatever has arisen must cease it cannot stick around and then maybe we are quite willing to accept the fact that well, maybe I'm not these thoughts there are too many of them well, what can I be? Well, let's see. Maybe I can be my feelings. That must be it. I must be my feelings. Because that um, seems more like it. So then, let's say we have a, an unpleasant feeling in the meditation. Well, we don't want to be that. I mean, let's say the right knee hurts. So we don't want to be that. So obviously we have to move. And then the feeling is gone. Well, am I gone? The feeling is gone. But I'm not gone. I'm still sitting there thinking, well, this is me. So which one am I then? The feeling is gone. I'm not the thought. I'm not the body, but I'm still me. And that's when people start making up fairy tales, what they are and who they are. And that's where we get all these different ideas, which are then sanctified by by religions, who we actually are and who we can remain. We don't want to be so mortal that we can just disappear and nobody ever is going to look for us again. And that's actually what's going to happen. We're just going to disappear and by the time our children are dead, nobody's ever going to look for us again. If we haven't got any children, nobody is going to look. And even maybe our children aren't going to look. (laughs) (laughs) So we would rather have something where we can say, well, we're going to you know, be in heaven and sit on the right-hand side of God or left-hand side, whichever is preferable, and uh, that's where we're going to stay. And uh, since we can't go up there with our bodies, we know that, because we can see the bodies being dead and in the coffin, so we can't imagine that that's going up there. And because we also realize that it can't be the thoughts, because we've got millions or billions of them, they've all disappeared, and we can't be the feelings because they've all disappeared, then it must be something that we haven't got any clue of. And that's when people start thinking of a soul. That's got to be that which we don't know and which apparently must be in there solid, unchangeable. The only trouble with that one is that the soul is supposed to be the nice part of our soul. What are we going to do with that part of ourselves which isn't nice? Where are we going to send that one to? What are we going to, how are we going to keep that one going? Well, obviously we don't want to keep it going. So we're going to make it mortal, 
and we're going to keep the nice part immortal. Now, if that isn't fantasy, I don't know what is. That's a made-up story which is only trying to make reality fit our wishes instead of letting us look at the reality the way it is and be satisfied with what there really is. If we want to make up stories like that, we can only hope for the future. We've got nothing in the present because that nice part of ourselves that we're going to send up there to sit for the rest of eternity, that part of ourselves will not be available for us now. We've got thoughts and we've got feelings. And the feelings are of a multitude. They've got three kinds, only pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, when there's a multitude of reactions to them. And this multitude of reactions, which are then our emotions, which come and play with us, play their games with us, they are never the same two seconds in a row. Again, the continuity of them overshadows their impermanence and our identification with them overshadows the emptiness of self. It's our identification process which makes it so difficult for us to see that there's really nobody there that can say, I am this or I am that. The uh, the sense consciousness, which is also part of mind, is our, um, our five senses <coughs> which are making contact. And as we make contact, the mind explains it through perception, which works like that. We hear a sound, hits the ear, and the mind says, that's a bird. Must be the white one I saw earlier. I like those white birds. I hope there are going to be some at that new house we are moving to. Have I rung up that uh, telephone company yet? Uh, I must tell them. They must install the telephone tomorrow. I've got other things to do tomorrow. All we heard was the sound of a bird. (laughs) So the mind reacts to the sense contact. The same here. We can see how it works very easily. As we sit and we have touch contact, um, we get an unpleasant feeling from this touch touch contact with the feet on the ground. All sense contacts create feelings. The sound of the bird created a pleasant feeling. The uh, touch contact here creates an unpleasant feeling. Now comes the perception. In the first case it said that's a bird. In this case it says this is pain. Then comes the mental formation, which says I've got to get away from this. I don't like it at all. This is much too painful. I'm going to have my, my, my legs are going to be atrophied if I sit any longer. A long story about that then. So this is the way we live all the time. We have the sense contact, we have the feeling, we have the perception, we have the mental formation. Now the mental formation is a thought, huh? and that's a reaction to the feeling, and that makes our karma. So if we identify with any one of these, 
if we identify with the sense contact, which we all do, because there's that little person inside that seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, then we identify with the feeling which arises. The feeling that arises, which is automatic. From all sense contacts we get feelings which never stay around, which are constantly changing. Then after the feeling we identify with our mind reaction to it, which is also constantly changing. So because we identify with what is called the five khandas, five aggregates, the five parts of ourselves, we've got the illusion of me. Therefore, the investigation into these five parts, body and four parts of mind, will help us to gain a little more insight. As we gain a little more insight into the aberration of the mind of having this um, identity um, procedure and this identification procedure, and therefore the, the self idea, it will show us that the things we worry about, the things we hope for, and the things we try to put our mind to are most of the time unnecessary, that there are far, far more important things to do, namely to gain complete insight from which then arises complete and utter calm because there is nothing to do and nowhere to go. We're going there anyway. We're all on our way to the grave. And we don't have to rummage around and try this and try that. It's all going in one direction. The only thing to do is on that way to be as harmless as possible, to be as helpful as possible, to be as loving as possible, to gain as much insight as possible, and by that, maybe to help a few people on the way. The path is anyway the same for everyone. So as we, as we use some of this for contemplative uh, and meditative procedure, our understanding grows and... Um, gives us more opportunity to be calm. If calm has arisen, we need this un, uh, investigation to gain a little more insight. This insight is rejected by a mind which has no calm because it is our, it is considered to, the self is considered to be our um, basis of operation. It's considered to be our um, our um, way of finding some security. Only when we really are honest with ourselves will we see that everything that's self-orientated brings insecurity, brings more wanting, more craving, therefore more dukkha, then we will realize how wonderful it is to let go of this kind of illusion. It is as if we are constantly trying to protect a most valuable jewel with all our might. We have to lock all the windows, we have to lock all the doors, we have to buy an insurance policy, we can't go on holiday because we are afraid somebody's going to steal it for us uh, out of our house. We don't dare tell anybody that we've got it because it's so valuable and uh, we are in a constant dither about it until one day the thing disappears. And then there's peace, because we don't have to lock up anything anymore. We don't have to be in a dither about it anymore. It's gone anyway. However, to get to that point, we do need the calm meditation, because it's a substitute for our constant craving in the world. 
So we need that substitute. And it also gives the mind a solid base on which to rest itself so that it can look into this new um, understanding without any rejection and fear. Now, obviously, to explain and to practice uh, insight just from one talk is uh, difficult and not uh, enough, but I wanted to give you an overview what insight really means. Now you can ask some questions if you like. Why? But there is. There's constant continuity. Continuity overshadows our understanding of impermanence. Well, let's say uh, it this way. Uh, you have to... Suppose that uh, just looking at the body, you can say that there's always cause and effect. So that although there's change, it's predictable. Oh, it's, it really? How are you going to do that? Do you know when you're going to die? No, but if I actually look at my, the cells in my body, for example, the actual physical things, then I can predict that certain things will happen. For example, How? If I drop acid on my foot, I know that it's going to burn. But you don't know, but that is an, is an outward act. We're talking about an inward act. You don't know when you're going to get sick. You have no idea. All of a sudden you wake up in the morning and you actually have to ring up and say you're sick. And it's true. And Or one, one day you're dead. You don't know whether it's going to last another 10 years or 15 years. You have no idea of it. There's no predictability. You're trying to find something solid somewhere. Well, keep trying. Well, now starting with the body, I think there is a certain amount of What? What, for instance? Well, just as I described it. Well, if you do that, if you do, if you do some outward act, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the body's inherent nature. An outward act is something that disrupts that inherent nature. The inherent nature is decay, disease, and death. So what else? What was that got to do with? Yeah. yeah. I think, isn't that what you're saying? Those things are predictable. Yeah, but you don't know when. You have no idea. But, but you, well, so what does that help you, the predictability? I mean, given the health and science, you should be able to, given the states, the state of the universe, be able to predict. The state of the universe has got nothing to do with you. Stick with yourself. The state of the universe is not what you learn from out there to in here. The way you learn the state of the universe truly is from here out to there. Well, I was just speaking about it on a physical basis once again, just a physical basis. No, I think you're coming from a totally wrong premise. You're coming from a premise of the scientists who are trying to predict what happens in the universe. That's not the way the Buddha taught. Well, you started out with reincarnation, that that isn't possible. So why is it not possible? Actually, I 
Actually, I'm not saying really, I think it'd be wrong to say that it's not possible, but it would be wrong to say that you could know that it was possible. <laughs> That's convolution of the mind, isn't it? No, no, say, it say it properly. Well, say it properly, nevertheless. It is not possible what? It's not possible to know that there could be um, reincarnation. No, it's not. It's not possible for an ordinary person to know that. Then That's quite true. But the Buddha wasn't an ordinary person. How he... I mean, he also, also said that you had to question everything. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to question reincarnation because you can't ever find out until you're enlightened. But what you can do is this. You can look at yourself. And that's the only thing that matters. The whole thing of the teaching, spiritual teaching of the Buddha, has to do with your, as far as you're concerned, your body and mind, as far as other people are concerned, with their body and mind. Absolutely nothing else. The Buddha said the whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this fathom long body. One fathom is an old-fashioned way of measuring. So you look at your own body and mind. So now, you've got a whole day you're living in. But you don't pay attention to the impermanence of whatever you're doing, thinking, feeling. And then in the evening, you go to bed, right? And then you're dead for a while. You don't know what's going on. And then you wake up in the morning, because that happens all the time, every day. You're quite resigned to the fact. Well, you just had a night's sleep, and now I'm here again. But actually, that's your rebirth. And what actually happens is your rebirth in every single moment. You're never the same one second and the next. Your cells have changed, otherwise you couldn't grow old and die. Your thoughts have completely changed from one moment to the next, and so have your feelings. But this is difficult for an untrained mind to recognize. Okay, I understand that, right? That's, that's, the, that's my problem. You're never the same from one moment to the next know what you're going to be in the next mm. moment. Then it's the point of, of physical death. No, wait a minute. What about next morning? You're not the same the next morning, and yet you're there again. You discover that you're there when you're there. Yes, yes exactly. Exactly. That is the same thing. That's exactly the same thing. You go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and there you are. And you have no idea what but you I are. Have, No, neither have I. Well, so the, what you said earlier was that you need to you know, understand the reincarnation to know that it's, a, it's real. You huh? have to see it have an insight. Huh? When did I say that? You said that you... The Buddha had an insight that there was um, such a thing as reincarnation. I said this is not possible for an ordinary person to realize that there is such a thing, but the Buddha was not an ordinary person. And you don't need to realize it. That's why I'm telling you, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you have bring with you the karma of the days before. And you have no idea what went on during the night. You had a small death. Only the reason is that you remember you were there the day before. So you think, well, that's me again. But you have no prediction of what this new day is going to bring you. And you have no way of identifying with what you did the day before unless you want to and this is what everybody wants to but you're no longer that person from the day before and that is exactly as rebirth functions 
but you don't need to uh, to investigate the rebirth after death because it's of no concern you need to do everything now at this time and so tomorrow morning that's going to be the rebirth you can experience actually you're experiencing a rebirth all the time but that you can't experience because the mind is not uh, geared toward that yet so tomorrow morning it's your rebirth you're bringing with you all your karma resultants and that's all you can vouch for that you're going to be there when you wake up that's all you know and it's exactly the same thing but you don't have to know that I don't know what's going to be there. You see, this is a typical cop-out. This can't be true, so I don't have to practice it. It happens right. all the time. <laughs> yes, well, there's got to be something wrong, otherwise we have to practice too hard. <laughs> it's a constant problem for people. All you do is wake up tomorrow morning and investigate. Who am I? Okay, well, let me try one last question. Well, why don't you use it the way I'm telling you to use it? Well, I can use it in terms of... Um, You're bringing with you all your karma resultants from the days that have gone ahead before you wake up tomorrow morning. I can certainly use it in terms of my own life, but I cannot use it between lives. Well, use it for your own life. That's all that's necessary. Between lives, who cares? Look, don't you see? Because there's nobody there. There's nobody being reborn. All that's being reborn are karma resultants. There's nothing you got to, can do about it. But tomorrow morning, you still think you're you. So use it. Use tomorrow morning. There's nobody being reborn anyway. You see, when the no-self is understood, the reincarnation is being understood. But since it's not understood, it doesn't matter. It has no bearing on it. So the, the reason I was talking about these things is to give a, come a little nearer to the understanding. But for the practitioner, you see, you have to practice on that track of relative reality. On the track where it says, this is me practicing. And I don't know anything about my rebirth. That's the relative reality. That's where you need to practice. You can't relate to the absolute reality because it's not part of your uh, consciousness until a person becomes an enlightened one. It's not part of anyone's consciousness. So you can practice with that understanding that tomorrow morning I'm being reborn, I have a whole day ahead of me which is like a lifetime and I better make something out of it. And then we don't waste our days. That's the only thing that we can actually do on the level of relative reality. And on that level, you can investigate, am I my body? Do I look the same I did 10 years ago? Am I my mind? Am I the feelings or the thoughts? Am I really? Or what if not, what am I? That's the practice on relative reality. On absolute reality, we can't practice. We haven't got it. If we had it, we wouldn't have to practice. Is that clear? Yes, that's Okay. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I'm not sure whether it was taught by the Buddha, but I heard an um, analogy about a candle flame is that from, from the Buddha's teachings, which I found very useful, where the, the flame of the candle burns, burns down the wick and the wax, and uh, we call it the same flame when we look at it all the time, even though it's a new part of the wick and a new part of the wax that's burning all the time. 
we see it as the same flame. Yeah. And then we can take another candle and light it from that flame, which uh, which we now have a new flame and a new candle, but it's all continuous because it's come from the same original flame. Yeah, but that leaves open further discussions. Yes, I'm sure it does. <laughs> so let's just forget it, huh? <laughs> let's just forget that completely. <laughs> and it just opens up a, a new can of worms. <laughs> Did you and you have to be more enlightened before you can understand about reincarnation. Before it's not more enlightened, I would say completely enlightened. Not understand. Uh, well, I don't know. Some people can get enlightened quite quickly, I suppose. I don't know. Most people take a long time. <laughs> but I would say that an enlightened person has no problem with that because they have a personal memory. Just like you remember being alive yesterday. And you have a sort of a recollection of what you did. You know what your name was. You know what you did all day yesterday. You can bring it back together, what you did yesterday. Well, an enlightened person's mind is so clear and so pure that he can remember what he did last time around. But that doesn't change the fact that there was nobody there. He just wasn't enlightened yet. I presume that that's a, that the only enlightened people know. Although there are people who aren't enlightened but are very, very far advanced who can, the Buddha was able to tell exactly, just like we remember yesterday, he was able to tell exactly what he did in past lives. And we don't have to worry our, our heads about it. We don't have to practice along those lines. We can practice along the lines of, of, uh, of uh, our reality in which we live. You know? And not to be more enlightened or less enlightened, I would say completely enlightened. <laughs> and then if one is completely enlightened, one can remember exactly one's name, one's mother, one's father. And there are, of course, cases of children in, in uh, Asian countries, uh, when they're very small, they do remember the, the, exact, the life exactly past, the one just past, but when they're small only. But uh, what for? Who needs it? The only thing that counts is to, to practice now. And then that doesn't matter. I mean, what we did last life obviously wasn't good enough, otherwise we wouldn't be here again. <laughs> and if, we, if we do it well enough, we don't have to come back. We don't have to do this again. So the only thing that counts is practice, huh? Is this yes? Uh, this is... Well, I'm going to and say what I think self is. If I haven't got it straight, to say no, and I'll, I'll go back and do some reading or something. But <laughs> it seems to me that self is a combination of body and mind, but mostly mind. It exists in a relative reality, but probably wouldn't exist in an absolute reality. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. what it is? Yeah. It is. It's quite right. Could you say that here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, self is a, a combination of, of mind and body, but it's mostly mind. Uh, there are bodily manifestations which are constantly changing, but the mind is, is probably <coughs> of the two more permanent or more has more continuity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that the self exists 
and the relative reality in which we find ourselves is our framework at the moment. But in the absolute reality, which we cannot see, although we're going in parallel to it, uh, the self doesn't exist, and as you become enlightened, I suppose, yourself is no longer, it, it, it doesn't, it, it's not necessary, it isn't that it doesn't exist, it's no, it's no longer necessary. No, it, it is seen to be an illusion. It's a mental operation, like so many other things that we do. You know, like we want to be loved instead of loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, our mind is in, a, in, in, in confusion. <laughs> and the, the main confusion is that we think we are somebody, individual, more or less permanent, and uh, personal. So the, uh, but on the way, on the practice way, which we do on the relative reality basis, we practice, glimpses are seen of this absolute. We don't have to wait, it's not like you have to be on this all the time until you can get there. There are glimpses seen on the way, and it's a gradual progression. And when these glimpses are seen, that there is another reality, that this me is an illusion. The relief is enormous. I have had throughout my life the impression that every once in a while I just look at something and I say, this is a stage setting. Mm-hmm. This, doesn't, this isn't real. This, this is, mm-hmm. It's all part of that huge fabric of, mm-hmm. of illusion and there's something real behind it. Mm-hmm. But I've never been able to do anything with it. It's just... Yes, but it's true. It is a stage setting. And we get quite caught up in the stage setting. We get caught up in the beauty of the trees and the beauty of the birds and the beauty of the sunset and the beauty of the sunrise. And this is another thing that we can do for practice. To start looking at such things that I've just mentioned in a different way. Yes, they're beautiful because they, um, we have that idea of beauty. But that is again in only in our mind. What they really are is impermanent. Look at them and see whether they're permanent. Whether there's any way they could be permanent. Whether they don't have that same characteristic that we have. Whether we can't find the um, uh, physical um, elements in them. That's one thing. And whether we can't find their impermanence again. And if we see the impermanence, then we look at, for instance, at birds and such. And besides being beautiful and besides being impermanent, we can also see their dukkha. They're scared. They're very scared because there's always something bigger than them. Might eat them up. So if we see them, if we start looking on a basis of things the way they really are, we see a totally different universe. And it's not one that is threatening or frightening because we are then an absolute part of it. The reason we are threatened and frightened is because we don't want it the way it is. We'd like it to have it differently. We'd like it to have it like a utopia. But it, ne- it never is. So that gives us an also an opportunity to see things more realistically. And it is a stage setting. It's made up to look quite nice. Um, if we didn't interfere so much, it would look even nicer. And uh, it uh, appears to have also the um, quality of support. And uh, with that, we, we are feeling as if it's real. But in reality, it's nothing but energy particles coming together and falling apart. Yes? Um, I, if we see ourselves 
as a self on, on the relative plane. But we are part of the whole. We are the whole. Well, what happens when, um, say, say, we feel threatened um, by air pollution, for example? By air pollution. For example. Yeah. Um, but we are, if we see, if we know that we are part of the whole, but we still, or say, I still see myself as a self, and yet I want to change an opinion which seems to be stronger than me to change that threat, even mm. though I know I'm part of the whole. If I'm part of the whole, um, do I need to change that um, opinion to change the threat? I mean, in terms of say things that like um, anger or ugliness or anything else like that, if well, I'm part of the whole. Um, well, if you're part of the whole, what you change in yourself already changes the whole, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> if you can convince anybody else, that's great. <laughs> but first, you got to change yourself, no? It changes the whole. And that's what we're doing. Anyway, that's what meditators are doing, supposedly. <laughs> Changing themselves to change the whole. And then maybe inducing a few other meditators to do it too. <laughs> Naturally, if we didn't have any goodness in this world, we'd, uh, you know, it would have collapsed already. Sorry, I, I was wondering whether I might pursue an answer you gave this question here about self. Um, does not then exist in reality. No, it doesn't. Um, actually, you can go further than that. Um, solid substance does not exist in reality. Just like the scientists say, there's no, there's not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. Solid substance does not exist. And since solid substance does not exist, there's no possibility of self-existing. There's nothing there. It's all coming together and falling apart. But it's very difficult to see, and we're constantly relying on our five senses. And these five senses that we have, and that um, they're very uh, primitive. They are, we are constantly relying on them. But, I mean, that we are separate beings is an optical illusion. And we believe what we see with these eyes, although they are totally physical manifestation. And, um, for instance, bees can see ultraviolet light, and we can't. And bees are very much um, inferior um, manifestation in this universe than we are. And yet their eyesight is better. So we are constantly believing all these senses, because it seems to show that everybody is separate. But in reality, there's no such thing. There's no solid substance. And with that, though, no solid substance, there's also no uh, person that is separate from, uh, from anything else. There is consciousness, and there is space. And space is super, space is material. material. And scientists agree with all that, but they can't relate it to themselves. That's a problem at the moment. But there some of them are coming nearer. Yes. I was just going to say that there's a, a man at Cambridge University who's bringing two scientific theories together, which is going to do just that, and they're saying that it's, 
that um, science is now, Western science is now reaching the same level as Eastern. Mm. Yeah, well, Fritjof Kapra have been trying this for years. Hasn't been quite convincing yet, but still, as far as... Too far down in physics, I think. Of course. That's right. His physics are, are too much part of him. And that's why the metaphysics are still um, sort of outside of, of it. But he's trying. I mean, that's already um, admirable. And uh, also, not only that, but he came to see Venerable Ponica Terra, who is a... A German monk in Sri Lanka and has is 87 and he's been a monk in Sri Lanka for the last 50 years and he's the greatest Western authority on the Pali Canon which is the Buddhist teaching uh, he's translated himself many many parts of it and um, many books by him are in existence and uh, I think you have one of them um, uh, the one about uh, mindfulness and, and so um, which of Kapra came to see him and ask him questions. So I think that's already also a very good sign. <laughs> and um, he's a... Venomana um, Ponika is not only a very great scholar, but he's also a, a very good meditator. So he combines the scholarship with the um, meditative mysticism which arises from that. So I think maybe he gave him some good answers. I don't know, I wasn't there. But my best friend is Nana Ponika's secretary, so she gives me these bits of information. <laughs> so the scientists are all in agreement with all this, what the Buddha said two and a half thousand years ago, which actually is probably one of the reasons why Buddhism is catching on in the West. And if it's to survive, it's got to catch on in the West. Um, because we are in such a scientific age and technological age, that if it wasn't agreeable with that, if we couldn't ref to get the two together, um, Westerners would probably not uh, be able to relate to it. So I think that might be a reason. It is certainly becoming much more popular in the West than it has ever been. Yes, but that's been known for a long time. Yeah. But I think people are now more educated, they realize they're even they're looking for something, something else. Yes, yes. Uh, I think the basis of the new age, yes. um, just for casting around for, for new, yes. new techniques. They, they, they realize that they need something. Yes. I mean, being just, just floating around being materialistic doesn't help. No. They tried this for 30, 40 years in the United States and it hasn't brought them any Yes. So there, I mean, we, uh, it is quite true now that really in the West uh, there's more and more people coming to listen to the Dhamma and I think also more and more practicing. It's also the, the uh, mixing of people too. We had a, a young man from Thailand who lived with us who came to work with us. And he's so calm and he just sort of spreads this over everybody. Mm. <laughs> and um, people are sort of stopping and looking and mm. asking mm. Oh, that's good. Mm. Yes, uh, that's a very good thing. Yes. It doesn't always happen like that. <laughs> 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 In fact, very rarely. <laughs> that's very good. Mm.